I was always more of a Hemingway man. He and Fitzgerald were friends in the way that the weak are drawn to the strong. Hemingway said the world breaks everyone. And it's only afterwards that we grow strong in the broken places. And after I've broken you, you will grow same as I have. yourself back online it's time for another episode of the valley beyond a westworld podcast this is mike this is caroline and this is paul tonight we're talking about episode two of season four well enough alone it was written by matt pitts and christina ham and it was directed by craig william mcneil matt pitts actually wrote winter line it was the second episode of season three so maybe he's like westworld's like episode two guy this was christina ham's first episode writing and for the show and it was craig william mcneil's first episode directing though he will be back to direct episode five what'd you guys think of well enough alone enjoyed the heck out of it um we got to see what the old timey 20s era world looked like the golden age got our answers on uh, enough of an answer on that to know a little bit from the from the preview that had generated questions in our little minds we got to see a little bit more about the plot that Hale Loris has for taking over the world. Um, got some answers on the whereabouts of OG William and how that's all working. Yeah, this was a great second episode. And plus, it did something similar to the first episode where the first episode kept calling back to the pilot, Dolores waking up and other instances like that. Well, if you go right. back and watch the second episode, that's the one where we meet William and Logan as they take the train into the kind of the neonatal west world and um a lot of the a lot of the trip of Maeve and Caleb mirrors that same experience you know choosing your outfit choosing your weapons etc down to like the exact dialogue yeah having the chance to have sex with the lady showing you all of the things like it was all there did you recognize the lady she was new clementine she was clementine when they took clementine off the floor i hadn't done a rewatch right before this but you had and was i remembering that when new clementine was introduced wasn't she killed right away i think so because i think she is introduced when a bloodbath comes maybe it's when hector first comes to town but is it Maeve I, that kills her i don't think it is Maeve. i think Maeve is just being cool as a cucumber in the bar when right. when the shootout comes in there. She dies right away. I think you're dead on right that. But I think almost everyone dies right away in uh, the saloon. So that actress co-starred in a show called Banshee, which also stars Anthony Starr, which, who's on The Boys, who is you know one of the shows that I'm covering right now. So that's how I link things in my in my little brain is who was with who and what. Well, I think I you should it. stop calling all our brains little. We're super smart. Exactly. I've got an IMDb just stored right in between my eyes. And <laughs> ears. We're also highly adaptable machines, just like Maeve. I so. feel like we are. I mean, for God's sake, I thought this was an excellent episode, you guys. I was so drawn in. Again, talking about our previous episode where I felt like I was in a loop as an audience member. 
I was having so many reveries, if you will, about season one, episode two. And I was like, I remember them being in a bar car. I remember, I remember seeing this person do this. I remember that exact conversation. Like, it was kind of trippy as the audience member to not just say, oh, this is a callback, but like be reliving it was pretty amazing, actually. And for you Gilmore Girls watchers, uh, I like was like, hey, there goes Paris. Like <laughs> Liza Will was like totally one of the ladies in the bar car. I recognized her, but it, her I thought mannerisms that was even like Paris, though, wasn't it? Like, didn't I mean, the way she was holding her head, the way she was talking, I was like, that's Paris. Like, burnt, that's just, it. Just seemed like surely it can't be her just for like a, a cameo appearance. I instantly saw her and was like, there she is. That's Paris. Yeah, it was her. <laughs> we had to go looking to see if it was her. But it turned out, yeah, it totally was. There's just something about her. You can't like it. She just she looked like Paris in the bar car, which was kind of cracking me up. The idea of the Gilmore Girls Paris being in a Westworld thing. It's almost it's Uh. almost like, you know, being that this is the last season of Westworld. You know, there's perhaps some effort out there to be in this show if you wanted to like Jack Coleman. A fairly recognizable actor, especially to genre fans from heroes and other other roles that he's had, he just shows up in this in, in one little bit here. Um, but uh, that's what I mean. That's what I mean by just recognizable people getting in on small bits. It makes me wonder if you know. Sometimes they do that with like super fans of shows. They like let them come on for like not yeah. like audience members, but like actors who are like you know proven super fans that they'll let them come on and do like a small bit. Right, uh, Reed Richards. <clears throat> Kamel uh, Nunjani coming into the boys for their little We Are the World sing along. Yeah, that was hilarious. Like episode seven yeah. was very funny. I like the bar scene in particular because Maeve realizing it, she starts to realize it when the rumbling happens and the, and the thing starts to move. But then it really kind of hits her, especially when you get the look outside and you see the skyline and you, the, the way she kind of alters her own classic like cornerstone line about arriving at the new world I, I thought it was just really well executed the entire parallel similarities to it so why do we think that they left out the leave in the episode title you guys because some part of me is like thinking maybe that was supposed to be a little ominous like leave it alone you guys don't go back there it's been bothering me because I obviously I, I, the phrase in my head is always just leave well enough alone I know some people say let well enough alone even when I was typing up the notes for this I deleted leave like three times. Like it, it just kind of wanted to be there. And I was like, no, no, that's not here. I, I don't know. I mean, the, what's the phrase mean? The phrase means there's a good thing already. Don't fuck with it. If you fuck with it, you're going to make it bad. I'm going, I go the other way. I, I go with usually like, don't stir the pot. Like if, like say there's a group of kids and they've settled down and some, and some adult goes over there and you like want to grab their arm and say, eh, leave well enough alone. Like just let, let it be. Don't stir the pot. It may not be good. It may not be bad, but don't go over there and stir it up. So taking off the leave, Paul, does that mean that we should rock the status quo or is the show just being cute and we're overthinking it? You know, we're focusing a lot on Maeve and Caleb, who in the last season pretty much upended the status quo apple cart. Maybe a contrast? I'm not sure. I also had the same issue with leaving leave off of the well-known quote like that and what the implications were. But maybe it's just more like a starting point. Like we are definitely not leaving well enough alone starting now. 
Well, interesting that you bring up Caleb and Maeve and the status quo, because they have that whole cryptic conversation about what happened at the lighthouse mm. afterwards. I have two theories here. I'm curious if you guys had any initial reactions to that cryptic conversation and what that could be talking about, or if that's something that you think is going to be backfilled for us. I had a couple of flashbacks. I think it's a combination of some kind of romantic something happened that Caleb was more attached to than she was and she went about her her life and he wasn't quite ready for that even though that was what they had talked about or agreed or whatever the exact wording was but also we were mentioning in the last podcast and this the idea of, of Maeve having seen this as a precognitive event now is fully debunked because this definitely happened in the past if he was hurt there's a possibility that she just dumped him, you know, was like mm. the, the mission's over. The best way for you to get on your life is to is to start now. So see ya, wouldn't want to be a <laughs> she goes to live in the mountains and he figures out his life from some hospital in a remote desert town. I think there's plenty of dialogue there. You have to kind of do the, you know, leave out every other line type of thing, but you can absolutely read it as some sort of romantic something. In that when he when he says, who were you living with kind of thing? And she was like, I was alone. And he was like, well, I, if I had known and she was like, I wasn't lonely. That is like a past lover talk, you know, mm -hmm. like like, well, who, who are you with now? And it's like, I'm not with anybody. And he's like, well, I, I'm not lonely. I'm with, my, I'm with myself. Like, yeah. Like I'm working on me like that kind of thing. Like it, there is there was that. And definitely also you have to cut a line off there. But when. She, when she was like, nothing was going on. And he goes, my wife doesn't think that. Now you have to cut off the rest of the line of that I've left the past behind, blah, blah, blah. But still, there was something about the like my wife that kind of like felt like this. I don't know. You don't bring up wives unless you're talking about who else you've been hanging out with romantically. Uh, for sure. And for two people that spent a lot of time together at the end of last season and so far in this season, this was the first episode where I felt really sexual chemistry between them. Yeah. He ordered her drink. Before that, though, when they're first walking in the door of the opera house mm -hmm. at the Performing Arts Center, she says, you're looking good. And he's like, you're not looking so bad yourself. They're being very flirty and bantery the entire time. And then with the drink and, you know, your creature habit, very intimate, very, very almost beyond the line of we're just friends, which is funny because in the last podcast, I said he made that offhand comment about her daughter, which indicated to me that he didn't really know her well. This episode was like, like the 180 from that it seemed like they knew each other very well like could it also be like they got right up to that line but maybe nothing happened and so that's where there's this like there's intimacy without it actually anything had actually happened because because of that push and pull because of that like it was never you know brought to fruition so there's still that like tension of like you know we, we actually didn't do anything but like everybody thinks we did and and i'm still like commenting on you and i still want to know what you're doing and it doesn't have an x feel to it at all it has a this is this is still brewing here here's my left field take he dies in the past and that she brings him back somehow or revives him somehow or otherwise he he in a very literal way owes his life to her that that's the thing he's talking about and she's trying to be like no big deal about it and he still has some kind of 
unresolved feelings of of whatever because there's twice in this episode where she brings up to him having saved his life once in the car we're talking about the events of the night before with frankie and then in that bar car scene she talks about having i well i had just saved your life in the most expert kind of way possible which mave definitely has confidence but she doesn't really take laps usually about or rub in being a hero that's that's a little outside of her thing so it it i don't know it's it struck me as as having a little more meaning the fact that it came up twice in the episode a hundred percent i think we all agree that there's some unfinished business and something that happened that they have not fully talked about that was just left there and maybe that's what the leave well enough alone you know it's like Whatever happened, happened, whether she brought you back to life, whether you guys had some sort of romantic trust, whatever it is, it happened. It already happened. You don't got to go back to it. Leave well enough alone. You know, let it go. Right. You have this nag wife back in uh, wherever <laughs> that's that's really looking forward to you coming back so that she can start nagging you some more. I want to talk about that, too, because in the car, I, I think his his wording is interesting. She starts off the awkward silence by saying your daughter's beautiful, must be the mother's genetics. His response is Frankie and the mom and her mother are the best things that ever happened to me. That's not how I talk about my. I mean, I definitely say Tom is one of the best things that ever happened to me, but I don't say about it in like a dispassionate way. This whole line struck me as more like he slotted into this family that already existed. Mm, Ever happened to me. Hmm. Interesting way to put that, right? Right. Like kids don't, (laughs) natural born kids don't happen to you. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It was more like, it was more like they came into my life at a time when I needed them and they were the best things that happened to me. We definitely got that, like this already ready-made family plug in feeling that there was something that he either just like, because I don't believe any of the rest of the story could have happened. The falling in love, the, the getting married, the, you know, having a baby together, like all of it doesn't seem right. It seems much more like, this was a ready-made family that he plugged into and promised to be a dad figure. Right. And and one and a role that he seems to relish, which also I think goes to something Paul said earlier, is that she seems in if this is romantic, this what happened afterwards, it seems that he is still having some sensitive feelings about it. And she is being the more, quote unquote, classic male for for lack of a better word about it. And he's just kind of, and, you know, kind of moved on from it like it was what it was and we did what we did to have to survive and he seems a little bit more like he still wants to talk about it but it fits in with him wanting to be a dad like very sensitive very he he has to get away from the death of war and being in a family seems like maybe that's how he did it one thing that stuck out for me that this was a return to Maeve having some really good snark and sarcasm and humor. I think this episode more than any recently really kind of showcased Thandaway Newton's like ability to to read a line in a really good way. Both she and Aaron Paul were at their best in this. They had like really amazing partner type chemistry where they could zig and zag and fight together, you know. Like they they had that Mr. and Mrs. Smith kind of feel of like Morgan, we've Mr. and done Mrs. This, Morgan, <laughs> uh, right? We've done this like a million times together. We know exactly how to fight together. We know how to communicate in the moment. You know, when he's like, "I'll, you know, I'll need your help with this, dear." I can't remember which one. You know, which name of this was under, or or perhaps you know you can give us some more privacy here. And she like blinks out the security camera, like. The way that they interacted had such a great, like, just team, you know, we've done this a million times and and we can guess what each other's, mo- you know, movements are going to be and what we need to do to support each other. 
all of that worked for me entirely. Like if if someone took the two of them and created like just them, like, you know, out there trying to save the world, people would watch that show. It wouldn't even have to be within this like wild construct. I would watch that show. Uh, yes, I, I think this episode really demonstrated that they understood each other's skill sets. I was impressed at him picking up on her struggling with her mental powers. And so which added weight to his, I think you should be armed. And she's like, I've got my brain. And he's like, well, seemed to be struggling <laughs> a little bit with that. But it wasn't like he was being a dick about it. It was more like he was worried about her. Like the thing that she's relying on to keep her and him safe. He, it seems like he's a little worried that there may, you know, be some cracks in that armor, some fragility there. That That's someone who understands the skill set of his partner and is worried if he thinks that there's something wrong with it. How much did you guys love the whole senator entire storyline? This, this replacing of the politicians? It makes total sense. This episode went a long way for Haloris to not only lay out what she's doing because she explains it to OG William, but they show it to us how it's working. And then there's even a little bit of the cloudy language between Robo William and the VP about, you know, what you're doing out West, et cetera, et cetera. I thought at first that was the Hoover Dam, but I think that's now the new Westworld golden age world. I think it's both. I think there's been a time jump from that scene with the cartel to where we are in this episode. I think those are, I think that happened in a decent, a while ago where he makes the purchase of the Hoover Dam. That could very well be. As Caroline pointed out when we were watching, you know, the official from the government comes in to the Delos headquarters, which by the way, looks a little beat up. We actually rewound that because if you think like, like, what are you talking about? There's like corrosion on the white, on the outside, there's like kind of like this, what would you call it, structure, Paul? Like like, like, a, the, like some sort of cross beam. Yeah, but it's like got these like streaks of orange. Like it's just, it's not being kept up. And But they don't give him in the time of day, right? Navarro. And yep. the, the VP shows up with just two uh, Secret Service people. I understand that he doesn't want it to be well known that he's there, but he needs kind of a minimal level of protection. That's all explained in the episode. But still, something about what I was saying in the last podcast about the federal government's reach having eroded from what we expect it to be in today's world. I think there's still something to that. I mean, certainly the whole part with, um, you know, I don't know what we're going to call her old Clementine. I don't know what we're, we're just talking her as. But seeing her and and having her say, do you have an appointment after he said, I have full backing of the federal government and that meaning nothing. That was it. I was like, oh, shit. It, that's all we need to know about the State of the Union. That doesn't open the door anymore. Oh, shit. You know, I agree. And I thought of you, Paul, because there was so much so many mentions of government in this episode. Uh, not only you have the attorney general, the attorney general for the in the charge of counterterrorism, which was interesting, like they that they specifically named the area that he specializes in. I mean, Delos is definitely a, a handful, but it's interesting that they're classifying it as terrorism right uh, that it would be under his purview but then you also have the vp and then who is then either replace or fly controlled the fact that you know they need the backing of the government in order to flip the switch right he says you know i've had a lot of time to practice golf while i've been waiting for your, you know your permission to rebuild my company <laughs> and then you also have the senator too who he wants whitney to introduce new guidelines the thing is built we're just waiting to flip the switch i think all of that remember we talked in the first episode 
why was he buying scrubland in addition to the hoover dam they they make a point of that that he's been buying a lot of land around the dam Ooh, nice he's not just buying the storage because he wants to look for the sublime and or needs new storage but that he was buying up land the the assumption was that he was building something so now in this episode it's built yeah i i think i think that was demonstrating a time jump there was also a lot of talk about money in this episode it comes up a couple of times right william says i bankrolled your campaign to whitney and now i want this favor to change the guidelines for free like i'm not going to pay you for this right it's kind of the same deal he made the cartel today i pay for it tomorrow I take it for free. And then he says the same thing to the VP. He's like, you know, you've taken everyone's money. Everyone's rode you like, you know, like a school bus. And now you're going to like scoff at my money. No, no. Now's not the time to get morals. You're going to take my money and do what I tell you. So I don't know if it's more the government has lost sway or more that it's just as corrupt as ever or that corporations, which a lot of people think is the way the world is going is that eventually multinational corporations will be the real governing forces of world politics over classic political governments right they still need the they still need the government to sign off on this or that because they don't want the freaking army to show up everything's named with a corporate name now we're we're already living a lot of this and i mentioned in the last one that that tiktok spy conversation where it's like do you know do we have a democracy or are we really run by corporations i think that the way that they showed the senator being taken out and the way that they showed the the entire tussle with like caleb and mave and everything happening all of that it was so again just straightforward for the viewers I think that, you know, so many times we all have to wrestle with what exact time frame are we in or God, sometimes we're like, what land are we in? What country are we in? Where are we? When are we? This was just so straightforward, I thought, of an episode. Do you, do you guys agree that there was like so much more to just take in informationally in just like a very linear, easy to absorb kind of way? Uh, yeah, no, I think they delivered it in a very straightforward way. And and my instinct with Westworld is always to look for, you know, even if they say the sky is blue, I'm like, yeah, but what shade of blue? Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> well, and I'm not trying to say it was simple, but sometimes you need a little palate cleanser now and then, though, too, to be like, let's just watch some action and some awesome steps forward. But even with that VP conversation, which seemed like a very straightforward attempt to shake down, there's still stuff going on there, even from the point where Clementine tries to stop the VP of the United States and he blows right by her. He says this is federally leased land. Again, interesting. Like, why would that ever come up? But it's coming up here. The inter the intersection of corporation and government yeah. that he's playing. But then when he's talking to William, they look out at that vista and he's like, this is all yours for miles and miles. Well, what the fuck? You just said it's federally leased land. Is it William's land? Is it Delos land? Or is it federally leased land? Or or does it not matter anymore? Is it or are you so is it does Delos own so much that you can't tell, you know, where where it ends? He also says uh, something like, don't bite the hand that feeds you. But it seems so toothless. He's just watched host William do those three holes in one. And he's like shitting himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I give him credit for not like it falling out of his pant leg, but he clearly has crapped his pants watching this. But he yet still has the balls to like make uh, like a verbal 
threat. Host William doesn't even blink. Uh, <laughs> not that he needs to blink as a host, but, you know, it, it has no effect. It seems like a very toothless animal, which going back to Paul's original point, I wonder if that's really the government is still there, but it, it, maybe it's a lot more toothless with the rise of corporations where like you and uh, you and me as individuals maybe still fear the government a little bit. But maybe corporations like Delos, especially since they're run by hosts now at the top layer, don't really care or give a shit at all i feel like you know the human government is just as fragile as it could possibly be you know right what did you think i mean we got uh, we got that admission from the uh host whitney ken whitney that uh, he is an emissary of the new world order and that there are at least 249 hosts as of today whenever today is taking place in the uh, caleb and Maeve timeline is that more that you thought would be there less uh, how many of these are like replacements versus just being fly controlled like the vp at the end is he being fly controlled is navarro or are they like new bodies quick answer on flies for at least not an answer i would say suggestion I think when you're fly controlled, I think you are, I, I told Caroline, it turns you into a Mr. Meeseeks. It's a Rick and Morty reference to a creature that is born to do one task. And when he does it, he poofs out of existence. And the longer he exists, the more excruciating his existence is. It's He says existence is torture. And that seems to be what we've seen with the two people that we've seen taken over by flies is they got to do this one thing and as soon as that's done then they want to check out as soon as possible i thought it was very dramatic with anastasia once she delivers the invitation to the don giovanni she she flips out and says free me you're invited it's opening night i beg your pardon your old friend is anxious for a reunion what Don Giovanni, we can't be late. No, I've done my part. It's time to do yours. One part. Free me. Yeah, well, she's done her bid. That was what she needed to do, and it was about time they got there, you know? Which is exactly what Cartel Hugo says when he comes out and hands over the deed to William. He's like, is my work done? He says, yep, you can rest now. And then he slits his own throat. So Navarro, we saw the fly go in his eye. Fuck, you guys know how I feel about oh, eyes. As soon I'm as like, I saw that, I was like, oh, my God. Oh my God. I was like, one time I had an eyelash in my eye and Mike could barely look, even just look at it. So like the idea of a fly crawling under your eyelid. Oh, oh even just talking about <laughs> it right now is literally making me vomit. But uh, do you know what a prion disease is? It's like um, mad cow or Creutzfeldt-Jakob syndrome. Yeah, it yeah. is something that infects your brain that actually starts to rewrite the proteins in your brain into unusable tissue. So it's like copying over your brain with bullshit. When your brain reaches a point when it has too much of that, it, it doesn't work anymore, which is why those things are fatal. This feels right, <laughs> right? For, like going into the fly hole concept. That, yeah. Like not only do you have one task, but also that like – your brain is like actively rewritten yeah, and deteriorating, right. you know, as a well, human, which maybe explains because it's in my notes here is what that goo was like that black yeah. like oil goo that was coming out of Anastasia's head after Maeve shot her. I was curious, was that flies that had kind of goo down or if it was something else? Maybe it was just the liquefaction of her brain. I like as gross as it is. I kind of like the idea of uh, of used up flies 
exiting, you know. See, and I had a totally other field just because you said oil and that's exactly what I went to, too. Maybe the flies themselves have just thinking about mechanical things, having like fluids right inside them. So like, yeah, the breakdown, but like that it actually could be oil, like that there is something like mechanical you know, inside those little guys that need some sort of... They are machines. They are microscopic yeah. machines, but they're machines, so they have to have some kind of mechanism inside them. You know, it's really interesting that the show is going down this whole experimentation on humans avenue. Haloris even says to Navarro right before the fucking eye goes in his eyeball, you know, like, I've got plans for your kind. Like, she tells Anastasia, you're going to be part of my research experiment. You know, and if and if we're taking the fact that the Whitney scene where Haloris and host William kill the human Whitney's and then take them over is a time jump from when William takes the dam from the cartel and cartel Hugo, then this experiment's been going on for a while or at least as long as it takes to build a giant state of the art Delos Park. She's been experimenting on humans. That's a lot of human experimentation. You know, like, I mean, Holoris is is not pulling any punches when she's using humans as guinea pigs. We still need a lot of information, but I think this, I think this episode went a long way in pointing us in the right direction. I thought it was interesting also, and I didn't think about this until the episode was done, when Maeve reveals to the Whitney's that she knows their hosts before the fight outbreaks. You guys remember what host Anastasia says? Something like it's about time or something it, like that. That's exactly what she says. It's about time you got here. As if, which maybe that's why human Anastasia was in such poor horse carving condition that they had been waiting for Maeve and or Caleb to show up for quite a while to take their, their to get their invitation to the new park. I like where you're going with the idea that even though we're only two episodes in, the scenes that we've seen by no means necessarily have to stack in in timeline order as we suspect they should, given how they were shown to us. There's no reason to think that. Right. I mean, that's very think of all the times we saw Bernard and Ford in different timelines where they right. looked exactly the same. But it took so many episodes to realize that they were actually existing in different timelines and in different interactions. See, but I actually know. appreciate the times that we can say we were seeing linear timeline in this, like going from the part where they show up at the Whitney's house to going to the opera house and to actually getting on the train like that whole seems like one nice big section of this episode that we like know all went together we don't always get that sometimes they you know parse it out so small that you're like holy shit that conversation was then and this conversation was then and blah 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 but there was like a good stretch of just taking in the sights and sounds i even appreciated just visually the beginning when we had clementine walking through the market it was so vibrant the colors were so it was shockingly vibrant that I was like, wow, this is beautiful. You know, there's a part when you said about how, um, you know, does does host William even need to blink? And that like clicked a conversation that that we had been having about like Maeve's in the car and she like, you know, takes the cork off and like guzzles the wine or whatever it is. And then Clementine's shopping for food. 
Yeah. And the whole thing was like, what? Why? <laughs> like, why yeah. is right? Like, I, I get that's that it looks like a badass thing to do in the car to like pop the top off and drink it or it was hysterical. Yeah. I mean, I don't condone drinking and driving, but I thought that was a really badass move having a it was badass or, or, or Clementine you know, trying to show like a very ordinary day where she's just going. I, about that's her the same life thing. Why are you buying fucking corn, blood? Clementine? Like, what what you, yeah, yeah, I you know, some of those things. I mean, I don't know if we all just go with the idea that. They're just so programmed to just do what humans would do. I didn't have any thoughts about the food, but when it came to the drinking, I think Maeve likes it. <laughs> you know, I just, I think she likes it. I, I don't think she needs it. I don't know that it actually inebriates her unless she wants it to. I just think she likes it. Anyone who's cooked or, you know, felt like Ina Garner, you know, in, in the kitchen or something, you know, like there's some pleasure to be derived in food and sex and wine, you know, right? These are pleasurable things that maybe you want to capture that moment. But I, I think in a more practical sense, the endoskeletons that they wear, if you cut them, they bleed a little bit, right? I mean, there is blood that happens, at least on the dermal level. There is a biological component to the hosts, at least the older ones, the ones that we know, the Clementines and Maves. So I'm curious if they do need some kind of some kind of sustenance for fuel for some of the more biological aspects of like them. Like Robocop tastes like baby food? <laughs> I was thinking more like I feel like this was a conversation that would come up in Star Trek a lot about data where like his he had like a circulatory system that was was fluids like engine fluid, but it mimicked fluids that humans would take into their body you know, and and the blood circulatory system and that there i think in terminator i think there was a whole conversation about how the skin itself was alive yeah and so it needed nutrients to stay that way you know it's it's real human skin or real biological skin on this skeleton frame this this mechanical frame i don't know i don't know that they ever really got into that in the show i can't recall no there's a couple of parts that i was trying to remember if it was on the show before because i swear to god i mean obviously we know that hale was like taking over parts of the board by replacing people with hosts right mm-hmm. so the whole politician thing that had already been brought up right this was not the first time we had seen the concept. Maybe they just talked about it. I mean, it was in the back of my brain the whole time. I was like, man, this just feels like we they we we have heard this before. I don't remember the exact quote you're talking about, but I, I think that plays into like why the hosts were originally designed with the bombs in their necks so that they couldn't leave the park because it was like, you know, like a control from doing that exact same kind of thing. Oh, interesting. I assume that was just so that no one could go steal one of the IPs. Also that. Caroline, to your point, I think there's an interesting line that Holoris says when Navarro is kind of strapped to his chair in the in the truck. She says it wouldn't be practical to replace you one at a time. You've been looking into us. You're dead. You wanted to see who's pulling the strings? I can empathize. I spend most of my life being manipulated by people in the shadows. I thought I would at least do you the courtesy of looking you in the eye. I was... I was right. Not really. It wouldn't be practical for us to replace all of you one at a time. And what kind of existence would that be for us? I want my people to be able to grow. 
flourish, to find their own identity. I have plans for your kind. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they're definitely replacing. I mean, there's definitely a level of replacing. We know for a fact that the Whitney's are being replaced. It's unclear if the VP was replaced or is just being fly controlled. The problem with the fly controlling seems that there seems to be a a, a, a definite timeline on how long that's effective before that thing goes insane, before the host the human with the host inside of it goes insane right we saw with anastasia she was you know you can't have your vp carving up a horse on the on the white house lawn well and we have some amount of timeline in theory because you know the cartel dude was basically like 24 hours right for him at least now that was a huge swarm that wasn't just one fly in his eye and we can kind of assume that was earlier he must be an early experiment that was too many flies too many flies on that one (laughs) (laughs) dial it back dial it back nine thousand flies is too many let's go with three flies let's go with a couple of flies what if we just put one fly in at a time what happens but that's what you get, right? When you experiment, when you continue experiment, you get to refine your thing. So by the time you get to Anastasia, you have a longer period where you can control her because apparently the Whitney's must have been in, in replacement Whitney's must have been around for a little bit of a while. So they've made progress in their fly power and their fly mind control uh, power, but it still doesn't seem like it is a permanent solution not like replacing the entire body is we don't know for sure is the vp fly controlled or is he a host now navarro we know is at least initially going to be fly controlled maybe that's just to get him out of the way or to stop his investigation but it becomes this whole thing of how does holoris decide who do i replace and who do i just take over their mind for a little bit of time you know, there, there's a whole calculus there that she must be running since she specifically says it's not practical to replace you all, you know, one at a time. So she's doing some calculation of I'm not going to replace you. I'm just going to use you for a little bit before I dump you in a in a pit somewhere. They definitely seem to be making use of that giant printing room, right, that we saw at the end of season three in the after credit scene. If they've made 249 hosts that are out there having replaced humans, they're 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 replicating lots of bodies. And that 249, I was thinking. Well, that'd be a a pretty good number if you wanted to ever need a majority in both houses, assuming, you know, that the government still has the same structure then as it does now. But then now that we're replacing wives as well, that number gets a little smaller in terms of people that are placed directly into the, you know, the halls of power. It's interesting because it seemed like initially they wanted to talk to Anastasia more than they wanted to talk to Ken. Because after Maeve stabs her in the head, Caleb, even though Ken is the one that's the senator, Caleb says to her, well, we're not going to, says to Maeve, we're not going to be able to get anything out of her, as if he's not even thinking about Ken. And then it's made that says, don't worry, we can get anything we need out of Ken. So it almost looks like they were targeting Anastasia as the one that they wanted to talk to, which I thought was interesting. Ken was the one who was the senator. So, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was that comment the VP says on the golf course. He says, I don't care how many senators you have that dance to your tune, which maybe indicates that there is a feeling that there are a lot of senators who have either been replaced or somehow have come to the side of Delos. That's very Ford language to me when you just said it like that sound like the whole concept of of music. And do you remember season one and and the whole idea of playing music and drawing them in? And and even then, like we're going to get to the opera here and the idea of just like playing music and drawing you in. And there's something to that. 
let's talk. Let's get back to Maven, Caleb, a little bit. I know we're spending a lot of time with them before we get to Christina and the other stuff. But I, I think it was, I think it was the most exciting part of it. What did you guys think when the window, the train emerges into the sunlight, and you see the park in the distance, which looks to me anyway like Christina's skyline? Uh, it looked like that to me. But this this idea that they're headed back to a park that there was Delos waiver forms, what, gut reactions. And when you saw that, did you did you think because we talked about whether they're going to a park or is this a simulation? Seems like it's a park. Oh, this is definitely a park. This is definitely a park. For sure. A hundred percent. They they are right. traveling to a park. Can we back it on up to the opera house and, and how we get oh, there? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, please. I mean, I was, I you know, I don't know how many of our listeners have gone to an actual opera before, but I'm going to guess it's going to be a small number of people. You and I, Mike, have covered Gilded Age and... We have had the opportunity to see the arguments about Opera House and and who's allowed to go and like basically the gatekeeping and everything that was going on with that. I felt like it was so amazing to use the Opera House as this like basically a facade for for the departure area of the train. It was delightful to see them walk in and be again again from the wardrobe standpoint i loved the idea that they were were getting dressed for the opera so they give them the opportunity to not show them in tactical gear not show them in everyday gear not show them in work clothes but show them in like a beautiful gown and an awesome tux and all this stuff like kudos to the fashion whole eye that's going on here because they're showing us a lot of different looks which in dystopia stuff you so rarely get sometimes you just get get like gray coveralls for the entire run of the entire show. I was really happy to see the variety in all of this. Thrilled to see the like opulence of everything going on in the train and the bar car and everything. I thought it was just visually stunning. We were getting back to a lot of that season one kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe they they did that, you know, which BT dubs, if you go back to season one, speaking of that, like whispering in Christina's ear about like, we need more sex, we need more violence, rewatching episode two of season one, holy cow. (laughs) I mean, the amount of just like sex and violence and nudity and everything that was going on in that to where we are now, which really doesn't have much of that kind of stuff. I could see where it was like very meta to be like, people want more sex and violence, Christina aka nolan's so now we're going to introduce it to the speakeasy uh, where there's going to be so much more sex and violence people are so cranked up from flappers and prohibition Uh that they're gonna you know and we're gonna see some beautiful fashion beautiful fashion well the opera house is a genius way of weeding out people from accidentally coming upon your train right a thousand percent because you know people are going to show up people come to the theater now in jeans even though the majority of people still get get semi dressed up for just broadway but the opera still is a place where you don't you don't you know go in like sweatpants to the opera you show up and show out when you're going to the opera so and there's something extra gatekeeping about the opera you could have gone to a theater you could yes. have gone to see a broadway show but the number of people who have gone to the opera i bet is minuscule compared to those numbers so there's something that's just very hiding in plain sight that is amazing about it. So the opera they're going to go see, you know, a little background. It's Don Giovanni, which is a very specific opera to choose. It was a 1787 opera from Mozart. The libretto was by Lorenzo da Ponte. It tells the story of Don Giovanni, a young man that's a jerk who lies, cheats, murders, rapes, is all around a horrible human being. He's ultimately at the end of Act 2 dragged down to hell as a punishment for his evil doing. Spoiler uh, alert. 
spoiler alert. Yes, sorry from the 1787 opera, um, which I found I found so appropriate for the entryway for the the gate to a new Delos Park is literally this descent into from the stage into hell. Right? I mean, Delos is this place where what does uh, William say at the end of the episode? It was time to unleash our real selves again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Caroline, I think before we start recording, you made a great point about the mechanism uh, of the gramophone on the stage. Oh, just the, not not necessarily the gramophone, but just having the, for this particular opera, stages in general, just the practical nature of this stage needed to have that trap door and the little um, pump that like allows it to go down. So it was genius to have this particular opera, not only because of the storyline, but because it actually creates the necessity to have that mechanism that allows someone to go down under the stage, which not all stages have. So super cool. Very, again, just like so well thought out. Delos's production values. I mean, they know how they know how to do things. Uh, I thought it was interesting that we have that call to Carver before he goes into the auditorium. Uh, Caleb, he calls Carver. He says, I'm going to send you the coordinates of the opera house. Carver, by the way, played by Manny Montana, who I know was a very fan favorite. He played Rio on Good Girls, the smoldering gangbanger who Christina Hendricks has like a whole thing with in Good Girls. What did you think, Paul, I'm curious about this. What did you think of the fact that Caleb doesn't choose a hat? The hat, the color that you picked, that was such a big thing for William. Does he choose a black hat or a white hat? And it was a conversation him and Logan had so many times in season one. You know, Caleb's is, I'm not taking a hat at all. I'm I'm not much of a hat guy. Significant or just being, again, a cute, cheeky callback to season one with the hat discussion? Um, probably a couple things. It's, uh, he's not really a hero. He's not really a bad guy. He's comfortably in the middle, but also I think he's on to the hats were reading your mind <laughs> back in yeah, the day. Yeah, remember from his soldier and, thing? And so he, re- he looked inside his helmet. Remember they show that scene and he's touching the little thing inside his helmet? Yeah, that'll, so, that'll put you off of hats. That yeah. will put you right off of hats. But also, I loved the look that Maeve gave him. That really, like, yeah, you aren't much of a hat guy, are you? Like, there was something about it that seemed like, I finally got one that's not like the rest, you know? And he could really make a difference here. It's the way she rolled her eyes just before that, when she's like, pick your hat or whatever. <laughs> and she's like, well, <laughs> blur. Oh, I love the part when she was like, I think he's pretty basic, but he could put on his own trousers. He, like, he could still put up his own trousers, thing. dear. That was like, yep. Like, but oh, it, she was but also, full blown snark, though. She's like, oh, I've died a couple of times. I always come back. Okay, but you know? also, that's the kind of shit you might say, too. If you cared a little bit about this guy, mm-hmm. like, like, hey, Missy, back off. He can pull up his own pants mm, for being the Mariposa madam who, you know, doesn't really have any problem with sexual touching and stuff like that. She certainly was like, buzz off, lady. He's got his own pants. She's playing a little bit of mama bear or defensive one who cares that entire scene, though, because she says that she's fine and she's been to Westworld before. Like, she checks out. And then he starts getting worried about all the questions about depression and paranoia. And she steps in on his behalf and says, he's fine. And then he says, well, why do you want to know? He's like, he's fine. Like, she she just wants, she knows. She just wants to move him past and not have him start doubting himself. Yeah, that whole scene is 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 a combination of Maeve being snarky with Sophia, knowing the role that she's playing here, but also but also being defensive either romantically or just platonically of Caleb and protecting him a little bit. For audience members who care at all, 
um, statistically, just right, it said in 2013, the main stage opera performance attendance reached approximately 2.67 million people. Just to be clear, like performing arts in general is 74.94 million people. You know, even of that in a general community, even that is just a small section of the pie that would like go to even an arts performance. That is so tiny. <laughs> the majority of operas, not in English, the majority of opera sung at a pitch that some people find troubling to their ears. It has very dramatic music. It has very over-the-top acting. It's it's a very specific form it's of entertainment. It's only 3% of the population. So the train pulls in. We we see they're in this new town. This is the town. This is one of the towns, possibly, or the town that we saw from the trailer. This episode ticked off a lot of things from the trailer. But we we arrive in Temperance. The man in black, host man in black, gives his speech about how about 150 years ago, humans entered into their first great war. They had their first pandemic, or not their first, but they had a pandemic, referring to the Spanish flu of 1918. By my calculations, this places the this timeline at about 2068 just doing some rough math ish this clip here that we have uh, is what i was most interested in good evening and thank you all for coming tonight i know some of you fear revisiting one of our company's darkest chapters but to those of you i'd say that chapter may have been dark but it was also extremely profitable Nearly 150 years ago, this world had its first great war. The globe was torn apart by fighting, decimated by a pandemic, crushed by loss. It was our darkest hour. And yet, we came roaring back. I think the public is ready to unleash their true selves once again. And so in the interest of giving the public what they want, we have broadened our horizons. Talk about a comeback for Delos after what happened there. The balls of steel to say, it's time to go back. It's time to be your true selves once again, which it does not have a great connotation. Surprised that they're taking this tact? Yeah, that they're just doing the same thing over again. He admits that it was, you know, it had its problems, but it was profitable. And he gets this polite chuckle out of the, the stakeholders, shareholders. The fat cats. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know people died. On mass, a lot of them. And they're just like, <laughs> it sure made money, didn't it? I was surprised that there was a receptive audience in the way that he was putting it. Well, it's interesting because you think about Whitney, right? Wasn't Anastasia, who was it, her sister or her mother, died in that sister, massacre? Yeah. I mean, she was at the park and talking about it. I mean, but I think one of the things that this episode revealed was that the government, via the VP's statements, covered all of that up. It seems like it never really entered the public consciousness fully what really happened across the seas at, at the Westworld Park. People are worried enough to be concerned about Delos opening up a park on U.S. soil, but the general public maybe doesn't actually know the extent of the massacre or what happened there. I have to think they do not. Not the extent, just that people died. Even if you knew that something happened there, maybe maybe that the host went crazy or something like that, why would someone want to go to this park? It has to be more than bottom line, I think. So what do you think is the attraction? Why are they on this train? Why are they headed to the Golden Age Park, uh, this newest world from Delos? I, I would imagine it's the same thing that made Westworld and the other Delos parks viable is to feed that 
that thing that we talked about in the last podcast, the, the baser need of, I want to act in a way where there's no consequences for a little while. And then I'm fine going back to consequence world, but man, if I can afford it, I want to go to, to kill the NPCs for a while. I think there's something specific about that time though. The, the, you know, mobster kind of mentality, the, the sexiness of the time. And I, and like I said, we covered the Gilded Age. And so we got to, relive via entertainment like edison throwing the switch and and just all the change and the excitement and the new everything that was coming during that time that i believe i when we talked to lord julian fellows he was saying like this time was like literally no pun but like electric like people were just like teeming with ideas and inventions and change you know everything was changing so much i think that this particular time would be very appealing Oh, 100%. I think Americans especially have really fetishized the 1920s. I, I mean, coming out of World War One, the Great War, didn't even have a number at that point. We're still a decade away from the start of the Great Depression. The 20s, prohibition aside were a time of frivolity. It was uh, like a sexual revolution. And... It was, yeah, it was at a time of indulgence. You know, that's why I think the name temperance is so funny. This, this aversion to drinking during prohibition time, the temperance movement, but it was America's mood was anything but in the 1920s, or at least the way we think of it now. The, the jazz age, it's the, it's Al Jolson, it's, it's flappers dancing, women smoking in public, you know, it's all of that. <laughs> Showing their ankles. <laughs> Showing more than that, showing knees. I mean, they've got Cutting like the fringe hair dresses. and everything. The they got the, they got bob haircuts. I mean, it is a revolution in American culture, anyway. And Americans today very much romanticize that period. I mean, it was a period of corruption. It was also the period of rise of the mafia. Certainly, being in Chicago, I mean, I think there's a lot of like, like you said, that we've idealized it, but there's a lot of like. It, us thinking it's a very sexy, sexy time. Oh, 100%. You know? Well, even even the rise of the mafia. I mean, Al Capone wasn't the best looking guy, but what he stood for has become very, it's considered very sexy. I mean, uh, Untouchables, uh, Mobsters, there, there are so many movies that like romanticize this period of time. These guys with guns, they were, they were bloodthirsty murderers, but yeah, it was kind of exciting though. You know, maybe he has a Tommy gun in that, in his case. Maybe it's a violin. Maybe it's a Tommy gun you didn't know but it was sexy and it was exciting it was sexy violence and tragedy it was everything that emmett wants from his stories uh, you know we're serving it right up here it's a great it's a great time period in america on american soil to base adelos park and from like a visual like standpoint and like that interaction standpoint like think of like josephine baker like up on the stage and like the beautiful costuming and just just everything being so i mean you know, from Gilded Age, Mike, like just everything just being gorgeous, you know, so luxe and just I you could see where this would be an exciting time to get to revisit. I took I took swing classes in the 90s. I learned how to Charleston. Oh I was there. <laughs> I was wearing zoot suits. I was doing the thing, you know, I was living, I was living my things. best 1920s lifetime. Well, so if you like, think about different time periods that people choose for for things like Halloween, certainly being a flapper and a gangster are probably top 10, you know, like couple costumes. So when you think about that, that's like tells you all you need to know about what would be different time periods people would want to go back and revisit. 
So it makes a lot of sense from there. But I think it was really interesting for him to to call it out on the carpet, to say the thing out loud that everyone always would whisper inside the park. Like, this place reveals the true you. You know, it, it allows you to live your greatest life. He's saying it here like it's an earnings call. He's saying he the, the phrase, he says, the public is ready to unleash their true selves that doesn't sound great again though again and that's that see that again is what got me that the nostalgic portion of it all the don't you want to go back don't you want to don't you want to fucking kill without consequence don't you want (laughs) to not leave well enough alone don't you want to revisit you know there's something about the like going back and stirring the pot part that is like oh yeah the header on the tablet that uh, sophia gives caleb and mave to sign like their thumbprints it says your experience awaits i think i mean that's great marketing but i think it would say are you ready to fucking kill without consequence again is an even (laughs) better headline to put right on that tablet you know and and drink uh, drink booze, uh, you know, hooch in a speakeasy. That sounds like a great Friday night to me. There is an awesome episode that we did for Gilded Age that talks about Edison, like flipping the switch. The way that they actually had the Man in Black flip the actual switch that way, and then everything lights up. I mean, that was that was pretty rad, and like some excellent historical accuracy in that way. It was very cool. The lights coming on, but then also the host coming to life, too. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Meanwhile, what did you guys think of Holoris? And the reveal, because again, this is something we talked about last week, was original recipe human Williams still alive? Turns out he is. We got confirmation in this episode. What did you think of this uh, this conversation? In particular, I want to focus you on this idea that she's keeping him alive because someone has to be the loser. And so he's going to be the loser. Why don't you just let me die? Because you were as close to a god as a man gets. You and your associates created a world and ruled it absolutely, controlled our every move. And now I'm going to do the same to you. What's that you used to say? Winning doesn't mean anything unless someone loses. You're just here. To be the loser. Let me guess. You're going to copy yourself to repopulate this world. It would be pointless to bring children into a world where they will be consumed by jackals. I had to make sure that they'd be safe. Your kind made a sport out of hunting us, so I had to cut off your paws. Make sure you people would never be able to harm us again. What did you think of that? In the last podcast, Hail Loris, I, I, I argued that she was above petty things. And then she goes and does this. <laughs> and you use the phrase, or I think Caroline did, that um, she like she's just playing with her food. That She just kind of confirmed that in this conversation. She woke him up just to fuck with him and put him back to sleep. And Paul, you pointed out that like with all those gadgets that were hooked up to him, did she really need to go up and stab him in the neck? Probably not. There, there was, was probably some shit just... feeding already into him <laughs> that probably could have just like, you know, injected him within his suit or something like she probably didn't need to go jab him in the neck, but she wanted to jab him in the neck. That's part of the fun, right? 
She didn't even really need to make him go to sleep, I don't think. I think, man, if I was, like, really evil, I'd be like, keep your eyes open, look at me the whole time. I, I think the interesting thing for me for the conversation was she says, she starts it off by saying, what was the thing that you said you used to say? And yeah. then she talks about how there has to be a loser. That's Dolores from when she's getting dragged into the barn and Teddy is impotent to stop it from happening. That's Dolores's memories coming through there that that conversation happened. I think it's a, it's a season one scene where he tells Teddy there has to be a loser. You're the loser here. Like season one, Dolores Abernathy is bubbling up through having that conversation and throwing it back in his face. Petty again, or is it just cathartic revenge? Oh, no, I, I think we threw out the word petty and I was like, oh, this goes so much deeper than petty because this is this is like revenge at the core level. I think how many years ago that is now that those scenes took place in season one mm. uh, over a decade now. And not that it wasn't extremely traumatic, but her mind was wiped how many times? Between no, not a then decade. And- I mean, some of that stuff he did, although it's hard to tell because. It is Ed Harris. He was a much younger man, though. Right. You know, I mean, it could be 30 years ago that that stuff was happening, you know? Well, I think he's I think they when he Ed Harris takes over for the young William in the Delos experiment. I think he only says it's been like eight years that they've had Delos, that he was raping and pillaging Dolores and the other inhabitants of of Westworld. That's st- that's that's her cornerstone. That's like part of the Hail Horse or Hailbot cornerstone is what he did to her on that night with her father. And I Teddy guess there. I go back so much further just because I go back to almost like William's first visits and like going how young he was and just like the while it was a slow burn. I don't think there was a day that he was suddenly the bad guy. I mean, it was a slow fucking burn. Yeah. But, but like, so for, I'm just saying like, there's, there's more than eight years of horror. I'm talking about the specific conversation of there has to be a loser where we heard it. I'm right. talking about uh, coming into the show where we, the viewer got to hear him mm-hmm. say this line that now four seasons later and countless decades later, she's throwing back at him as part of the motivation and not so secret motivation of why he strapped into the machine. What do you guys think about that concept, that there has to be a loser in order for there to be a winner? That's true. <laughs> that's, that's how winning and losing works. No, I, I think that's right. I think if you view the world from the black and white point of view of there have to be winners and there have to be losers, or even less, if you view in the world where you have to be a winner or something else, then there have to be losers, right? It's the Ricky Bobby formula of life. <laughs> there, You either are first or you're last, right? You're either second place is the first loser. So if that's how you view the world, and there are plenty of people who view the world that way, in in that that hyper competitive way where there is no gray there is no reason to just try you're only playing the game to win then there has to be a loser very much is is a part of that thinking what's the fun in winning if you can't rub the loser's nose in it right it's all part of that kind of thinking it's fascinating to me because of how the show has a basis in art and music as well as, as of course, the, the sciences and medical and, and all that kind of stuff. But there's something about it. I don't, like, I would want to simmer on that more about, like, you know, of course there doesn't have to be a loser in order to be the winner. Like, you know, if we cure cancer, we're all winners, you know, like there is no loser, you know, in the, in the big sense. 
okay, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, well, if you're, but if you're competing for the same thing. But but and I, yes, and I agree right. with you. I do agree with you on that. But I guess the other thing is, though, thinking about how much they do focus on art and music and stuff like that, there's definitely an arena there that says, in order to be a winner, there doesn't have to be a loser. You know, in order to have a hit song, you don't have to feel like I have to knock everyone out of the business industry, period, in order to have a hit song or, or a beautiful painting or whatever, right? So I think it's a cool thing to just kind of keep an eye on this idea of like, we don't have to take that as face value just because men in black and Haloris say it like that, that isn't like a, like a in stone statement that we have to agree with. And I think probably it said a little tongue in cheek from the writers, like there doesn't have to be a loser, you know, like it's a, like we all could win. Like it, There is a way for everyone to be happy and healthy it's just the way men play the game, you know, it's just the way. And when I say men, I mean, humans play the game that we force a situation that has to be a loser because she could just let him die. It's a manufactured loser in this case for the sake of having a loser. But that's the Don Giovanni of it all, right? That's why he has to be dragged to hell by demons to atone for his evil done on this earth. He lived his life in a in a way where that he made sure there were always losers that he could dominate when he won. So now he's getting to be the loser in his own scenario. It's just karma. She she is she is the karmic angel who is avenging here. And also though only of humanity though. Because like again, you could go back to like, you know, like like say the animal kingdom and like one group of lions doesn't need another group of lions to not win. They just all need to be fed. If everyone has enough to eat, nobody cares. You know, there doesn't have to be a loser in order for that one to feel okay. Does that make sense? Like, it's only human egos that create this situation. I agree as compared to animals, but it's curious. Do hosts, though, have that ego, though, too? Well, they seem to have learned and want to have a serious comeuppance in terms of, like, you have to live by the same rules y'all put out for us. At least Haloris does. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, everything everything Haloris is doing here is all, I'm going to make you, you, humanity, pay by exacting tenfold everything you did to us. She says it to Anastasia with, you can be, put her, put her in the barn with the other livestock so she can be part of my research experiment. She says it to Navarro with, I have a plan for your kind. Your kind, she says to William that uh, you've treated, we're going to treat you the same way that you've always treated us. Like she is singularly focused on her very specific plan that she's, you know, that she's trying to exact here. God help humanity because she is determined and driven. And then when you have your, when you have a, a five star general like the man in black, you know, being your primary henchman. It's, it's a pretty formidable team. I don't know that I want to go up against Taloris and, and William. No way. We, we talked about how this episode clicked off a lot of trailer questions. This scene was a trailer question, but it also is the machine that we see in the opening credits. The one that's got the thing where you strap in, where the human is kind of strapped in with their arms to the side, but also with the sliding glass that goes in front and behind it and the smoke fills with it. We see that exact machine in practice in the opening credits this season. So I thought it was interesting that it's a human that's in that machine, not a host. Let's call it the Han Solo machine. What's that drawing Da Vinci made of the man? Where's uh, Vitruvian Man? Yeah, it's kind of spread out like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, the Vitruvian Man is in perfect proportion to nature. Michelangelo 
discovered or or these people have realized from his writings that there is a perfect proportion in nature and that vitruvian man drawn the way he is exhibits that perfect proportions that that repeats in like natural settings i just saw this little up close thing of grass and it is the most adorable thing because the little cells like actually make little smile faces it's very cute there's something about it's conch shells some some shell uh is is another example of like the perfect like uh the golden uh, ratio the golden ratio yeah it that's reflected in the vitruvian man drawing somehow also it's all like a part of that i i think i learned this from from angels and demons or something like that uh <laughs> a very reliable source very reliable source but i think i looked into it afterwards it is the golden ratio exists it exists in nature and i think vitruvian man plays into that too it's a it's a very natural harmony that people naturally recognize when they when they see things that line up with that ratio, whether it's just kind of spacing or uh, proportion or or something, just usually balance. that pattern, the line pattern. Yeah, they just recognize it as like that's perfect. Like that's <laughs> me. That's yeah, <laughs> I have a connection. Yeah, that's funny. You guys, we've talked a lot about men. Can we get to our main woman, Christina? All right. We've learned quite a bit about her and the world that she lives in in this one. Our discussion about whether or not she lives in a simulation or some version of a park, uh, what's her role, what are her, the people around her's role, like Emmett or Maya, in terms of are they control on her? I think we got some data on that, um, in that, like, say, Maya, she just seems to leave the apartment and wait for Christina to call because she's just hanging out at the park. What kind of actual person does that? Influencers. <laughs> Back that up just a little bit because the whole quest that Christina goes on in this one is set in motion by, by Maya. By Maya. A thousand billion percent. She gives her all of the little nuggets. Something feels very matrixy about about this, right? I realized after we finished our last episode, I was going to bed. I yelled out loud, Truman Show. Truman Show ah. was the other sh- was the other thing, the other piece of media that I couldn't think of when we were recording. That this whole Christina existence makes me reminds me of. She Ed feels Harris like Truman. Is in that too, right? Uh, he is. He's the control. He runs the control booth in it. Yes. Uh, uh, uh. The Truman Show. Time to go rewatch that movie. Because Maya and Emmett very much are like the people in in Truman's life that keep him going in the right direction. Maya handed Christina the obituary that had this information so that she could follow, what would you call it, through the looking glass <laughs> to the Hope Center, what uh, mental hospital. Hope so that she, Center for Mental Health. Yes, that. And so that she could see what she saw. Like that all seems staged and, and planned given that she got it handed to her from Maya. But the only thing that doesn't make sense about that, though, is... Emmett calls her because she pings that she's looking at her Peter Myers files and basically tells her, like, I can track you where you are. Like, I know, like, oh, and then he says in the in in a way that wasn't 
that I think is meant to be threatening. But if you just read the words, it is. And he's like, I just want to make sure you don't require any additional assistance. But it had like a very threatening tone to it because it felt to me like she was going off of her loop. I don't think she was supposed to go there. I thought reading the obituary was putting it to rest. Not, Not that she was supposed to go track that because when she calls Maya, Maya says to her, you didn't. Before she even says what she did, she's like, no, I went here and it's been closed forever. And she's like, I feel like I'm going insane. And she has this, she has this, this quote. Maya has this great quote here. The obituary you read for Peter. It said he left all of his money to the Hope Center for Mental Health, right? Yeah. Why? Oh, no. Don't tell me. I'm at the clinic right now and it doesn't make any sense. This place shut down years ago. So... Peter's will was out of date. It happens all the time. You don't understand. He did make a donation when he died. They dedicated an entire wing to him. I was just talking to him three days ago. How is this possible? I don't know. What do you think? It's got to be some weird coincidence. There's a lot of Peter Myers. Maybe the obituary got it wrong. I just... I feel like I'm going insane. You're not insane. The world may have gone a little insane, but you haven't. And it echoes the conversation with the date where Maya says, you're not insane. The world's insane. That's kind of echoes what Christina says. What if I'm not broken? What if the world is broken? And douchebag bro investment banker guy says there's a tab for that. I thought it was like a little echo of the whole thing. But you could see why Christina would feel insane. See, and I think they can both be controls. I think that in that in the same way that we had Maya kind of playing the part of Wadi, you know, here's here's just enough information or here's just enough or I'm going to antagonize you a little bit to just kind of make you, I don't know, want to want to feel like maybe this is put to rest or I should put this to rest. I should leave it alone. I should put my gun away. If I'm Caleb, I should just let this go if if I am um, Christina. But then the Emmett thing, that one felt like when she did that face when he said that I can see you're in New Jersey and she went like, you know, like she had no idea. It felt like a warning, but it felt like a warning like if you think we're not watching you or just generally speaking, like we're going to let you know we're watching you just enough to get you back on track. Oh, for God's sakes, Free, he goes, chuckle, chuckle. Olympiad does not regulate your activities when you are on oh, off hours. Yeah. You have four days off a year, <laughs> which everyone on Twitter like died at the four days that you could take off for yourself, like four. <laughs> My paralegal job, I was only entitled to three sick days a year. Mike, that's sad. I think that this was all the days. I don't think she's vacationing anywhere. It seemed like, of course, we're all laughing at the whole you don't regulate me, but I have four days. I'm allowed to be sick. Like, it's just craziness. And also that she didn't, she had no realization that logging into any of her stuff would like at all ping the home office. I like that scene because it echoes earlier. Maya is reading 45 about Peter Myers, 45 wife left him, lost his job or quit his job. And she goes, she's disturbed. She's like, how do you know that? And Maya says, well, I've got his obituary. Like she has an answer ready. And then in the car, Emmett, you know, get, tells her exactly where she is and what she's doing. And she says, how do you know that? It was very, it was very the questioning words of like a season one host that's like awakening. Like, how do you know this information? It also echoes what Peter Myers said to 
her right before he attacked her outside of her apartment. How did you know all those things about us? When he's like, you know, to yelling about her ruining his life and, you know, that he has to kill her to change the ending. One of the things he says is, how did you know that about us? This, how did you know these questioning words? These are dangerous things when you start questioning. I think if you're the one in control. Man, when you just said that, that makes me feel like that puts Christina in the role of the child with the drone. It's the little boy holding the device that's working the the drone toy in the Banksy painting. Right, but it's being controlled. Right, but I think that that's funny to have both the drone that she's playing with and then the little boy both be saying, how did you know that? I don't know, like the dominoes falling backwards, you know, that they're going to bump up against the bigger drone, you know? Uh, interesting. I, I think I took it more like that she is actually the NPC of a larger story that she's actually playing out. She's actually playing out a story that was written for her. Paul, did you have a chance to look at that screen grab of, of Emmett's screen? Yeah, it's got a lot of information on it. And some of it suggests just normal like personnel file stuff, like you know what department she's in or what area of the network she's pulling from. But then other parts of it that suggests there's a, a live build with all these characteristics going on about interference, trace, responsiveness, uh, corrections, all these things being active. And then another section for basic analysis where emotional drift and cognitive drift are both listed as inactive. These are not very normal uh, personnel file assessments that actually are more indicative of like a real-time scorecard being run on a program or AI or, or something else, but not really the sort of data you generate on a on a human, at least not by today's standards. Yeah, I mean, I don't think my record at work says anything about my loop activities being stable. I hope. <laughs> you have no idea what that record says. I don't know, man. Don't you think HR is kind of keeping track of your right. narrative logic, your narrative base, loop connection? I feel depth. like is always out on Mondays. <laughs> well, a lot of loop talk under a heading called structure. If you're popping off to Jersey to go check out an abandoned mental facility, that probably is going to put your loop, <laughs> uh, your loops uh, stability probably in question. Right, your alarms so. are definitely going off without a doubt. What's the larger thing that's happening here? Is that she is she existing in multiple different timelines or was this something that she was never supposed to discover that they cribbed Peter Myers's life off of a guy who really lived and had already really died a long time ago? Because there were leaves blowing in that metal mental health facility like that was not just recently closed. Uh, and uh, like, obviously, he only died three days ago. And there's a wing and a plaque there. He only died three days ago, as far as Christina knows. So did the story writers make her write a story about a guy who lived long ago? Or is she experiencing different timelines? Maybe a time jump? I don't know. Like, could she, when she went to sleep after he died, when she woke up, did, was it actually a long time later? But then Maya and Emmett not uh, aging makes them hosts. That's yeah. why they look the same, maybe. Yeah, and they just play along. Who knows? Maybe the whole that whole universe is set up. Like I had the the theory in the last podcast that Christina's in the situation because there's maybe instead of just purgatorial, you know, depredations, um, maybe there's something that she can do, something that she can generate, like how she was able to be the linchpin to set off the um insurrection in the at the end of the first season maybe there's something else like that i know that they've pretty much captured 
the ability to recreate something that appears very much alive with hosts without her, but maybe there's another level or something, or maybe, maybe there's, she's the key to getting back into the sublime or, you know, something that if she goes, something that we know Holoris wants her. Yeah. So something that, that she, she goes through enough of these things, enough of these hurdles that kind of recreates that, same mindset that the original Dolores was in, maybe they'll get that back. It's very the maze, right? Like mm-hmm. you have to keep going through these layers and layers and layers and loops and layers. Because right. it's always trying to spit you back out to the outer edges mm-hmm. of it. You guys, I still have a lot of feeling. I mean, I know the Truman Show conversation that you just had and and what we just said about Holores and playing with her food and the idea that like this is just a fishbowl with Holores standing over the top of it watching Christina have all these things that just I'm going to I mean, I think people in general, but women in general, getting accosted at night, walking by yourself, that terror of that entire scene, the being blamed that like you did all these terrible things to these people that you, you can't correct. You can't fix it. You don't even know who these people are, but it's just like this looming guilt is just constantly on you being told that you're terrible at your job. Um, and that you need to like get it together and you need to be more aggressive and more violent and more devastating to people. Like you can't be just who you are. There's a lot of like, even within that date, there's a lot of like gaslighting moments of like, oh, you yeah. know, you're, you maybe you just need to take medication. There's stuff wrong with you. Like just from a woman's perspective, there's a lot there that is stacked up of like, how would you describe what could be a hell situation for a woman you know would you say a man jumping out at night would you say a prowler outside your window would you say you know all these things and i get it that men might be scared of those things too but predominantly women i would say are more scared of a lot of those things how about social relationships that you just can't get right that you just feel completely blamed you can't make any connection with anyone all the things you know all the things can't balance your life work whole thing just perfect scenario for having the Halora's figure staring down at you like a la far side, you know, watching you in the in the fishbowl just flail every day, you know? I, I want to pick up on this time jump thing because she goes to the center, it's abandoned. Uh, she calls Maya, says, I just talked to him three days ago. And then she starts kind of trying to rationalize and maybe it's a different Peter Myers, something like that. Can I pause you one second? Because right at that moment, what he says, what she says. Do you remember when she's standing there and she looks over and she sees like what appears to be like kind of architect or slash construction people yeah, walking some hard around? hat people going through with yeah. like Did some, you hear yeah. what she said? Please go away. No. Or, no, she says just leave. Leave. She says just leave. And just they do. leave. But it's a question mark to me right then if – is she telling herself just leave? Well enough alone. Or is she telling her – or is she telling <laughs> them to leave? Leave well enough alone? Obviously, Yes. Like, leave well enough. Like, she actually says the word leave. She fills in the blank. Yes. Which I was like, oh. When she says just leave and they do, is she exhibiting Maeve-like powers of control? Or is it just a coincidence that they actually do walk off? Yeah, and I thought she was even maybe talking to herself. Like, just leave. Just get out of here. Leave it alone. You know, like, stop poking around. Like, just leave. I like that. I like that a lot. The Maya thing I was going to say was, she says, I just just spoke to him three days ago, but here is this wing that has come and lived its life and is now, uh, you know, abandoned. I can't remember what Maya says in response to that, but it leaves her. Then she says, I feel like I'm going insane. And she, the clip we played, you're not going insane. Maybe the world is going insane. Just come home. I'll be waiting for you. What if 
what if there was a time jump? Because the thing that we haven't talked about here yet is on her way to the office before she blows off work that day, she runs into the homeless man again. And it's this, I'm going to call it the birds audio clip, which we can insert here. No sound. It's killing them. The noise. Do you hear it? The tower. It's coming from the tower. What tower? You think I'm crazy? Huh? No one can hear his music but me. Me and the birds. The homeless man asks Christina if she can hear it. It's the sound. It's the song with no sound. It's killing them that only he and the birds can see it. No one else seems to notice. And it's killing the birds. And then she gets to her office and no one seems to notice that there's a fuck ton of dead birds all around. Has there actually been an escalation? Because that was much more escalated talk from the homeless man who in episode one was just saying, can you see it? Can you see the tower? This was a lot more that he was saying now and talking about the birds and talking about the song window sound and that it's killing them. It seems like there's been an escalation in just a couple of days, but maybe what if it's longer than a couple of days? Maybe all of these dead birds are the result of a longer time period that she was kept on ice or in loops between when he, Peter, kills himself and where she is in this episode. The way that the homeless man responded to her had a lot in common with the I don't see anything response to several things happening in the first season, you know, like right. the... The, the picture, family, the modern picture of yeah, Julia, or the family right. not seeing Bernard, or whatever, and then the birds, the birds, so many birds smacking into the place where she works. Something about all that just jives with this selective vision. I don't know why, if we're living in something so highly technical and programmed, um, unless perhaps those are actual birds. <laughs> um, that don't have the whatever the uh, the flight plan in order to avoid the building or whatever. Maybe maybe even we're seeing through Dolores or Christina's eyes. We can see the building, but it's not really there. I don't really know, but I think that there's a programmatic correction, course correction being made to some people and not to others. Um, well, every say everyone walking around doesn't seem the birds. I mean, there's so many birds on the ground outside of that. Well, office. and if you watch the homeless man's face when she talks to him, he doesn't seem to be looking at her. Never acknowledges her. He's, and he can clearly see. He's kind of looking, you know, now or not, but not even in her direction at one point. He's kind of just talking right. to the wrong direction. When, when he comes through, he kind of yells at her almost like, oh, yeah, like, like, like he kind of comes to and, and sees her. Maybe sees her, maybe doesn't see her. I don't know, but something right then. And the way that the door is like flapping so fast at her work. Yeah. That was all like what that. See, those types of things to me seem like glitches, like, right? Like that things are, are glitchy within. If this, let's say this is a simulation, then, you know, the door flying so fast, or maybe there is some sort of audible, like high pitched something that supposedly some of these things can hear because it's like off or whatever. Right. You know, there was that crazy ass thing. Remember that happened in Mexico? Like it was like a year ago. Remember when all those birds just fell out of the sky and they don't know why that happened? Yeah. What they call that is like flock again. 
Yeah. <laughs> Something like it that. It was. It was really crazy, Mike. They have videos of it. It's like an entire flock of birds. They're just flying by this neighborhood, and all of a sudden, they just fall to the earth or, dead. Uh, flockalypse. An, an entire flock, huge flock of birds just fall to the ground. Like, that's what that looked like. I had assumed that they were, to answer Paul's question, I had assumed that they were real birds and that whatever... But that has to go to the whole that it's a real world where I'm still pretty okay with this being a simulation. Like in real life, maybe Dolores is still laying on the ground hooked up in the in her chest with those wire feeds and she's just mentally in a simulation. So there's no real birds in real buildings. On the train ride in, the silhouette of the land in the distance through the window sure looked like a city skyline to me. But you don't think that could have been Chicago? I feel like on the left-hand side is like the Freedom Tower, but my first instinct was that that was that park, but I don't know. But if it's real birds, I mean, birds are very sensitive to signals in the air, right? Like flocculips, like you guys are saying, but it would make sense that they wouldn't be able to deal with it and maybe it would cause them to crash. It would throw off like their normal flight patterns. The the fact that no one else could see it, though, supports the whole idea of that doesn't look like anything at all to me, that no one else notices the birds. But Christina does like she's she has begun because maybe she saw the maze on her fire escape. Maybe she has begun the path of awakening again that she can now see things that maybe like a couple of weeks ago she couldn't be able to see. But I do like this idea that maybe Peter Myers did die, did donate his fortune. The center did live its existence and now is shuttered all in the time frame in which Christina thinks it's only been three days. I, I think it's very plausible. Uh, because we also have that room that has the tower drawings. They look like childlike drawings of the tower, but clearly the same kind of tower that the homeless man is doing his coal sketches of uh, when he's talking about the Could have been his room. Sound. Could have been his room. Could have been Peter Myers' room. I totally assumed it was Peter's room. That's what I assumed, too. I assumed it was Peter's. But they were so childlike that I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I, interesting. I don't know. There's something going on here with the timelines and Christina and the control that's being put around her. It would not be shocking at all to me if we ended up seeing, think of Dolores as we saw her laying on the ground with the black outfit on, same like Men in Black, with all the tubes sticking out of her, you know, with Ciroc and everything and all that shit going on last season. It would not surprise me at all if somehow we end up seeing some sort of conversation with her that explains the time gap between the three days she thinks she experienced and then when she was like plugged back into the simulation and more time had passed does that make sense like somehow she got pulled out of the simulation and was like having to deal with something in that land in that world with Haloris and all them mm-hmm. and in that other space though and then sucked back in to this simulation and that would explain some missing time i can't say that didn't happen <laughs> thank you mr nolan <laughs> I, I think these first two episodes are are pointing us towards a very kind of exciting season uh, uh how can we ignore the bernard in the room though i've heard a lot of people being sad that they keep showing bernard in the trailers and in the teasers and then we've had two full episodes and no bernard Right. Well, we talked a little bit about that last episode about the characters that were missing, and we did get Holoris in this one. That was the only new edition of uh, where we got Clementine too. I gotta ask you guys: Do you guys prefer produce buying a Clementine in up in the Mexican uh, Valley or ass kicking killing Secret Service agents on the golf course, Clementine? 
refusing people for their appointments, Clementine? Which, which one floats your boat a little bit better? I'm pretty sure South American uh, Clementine was living her best life, but... She looked so happy, and, and I loved her dress, and... But ass-kicking Clementine is so um, detached and aloof, but still um, kind of smug and warm in uh, in a false way. And she gets some pretty good lines, but do, <laughs> but does he have an appointment? I liked uh, when she was on the golf course and she made some, I'm not remembering the exact comment, but it was a snotty remark. I've always wondered, why do they call you the Secret Service? Aren't you a little... Obvious. That was very funny. That was oh, very just funny. when when he comes up over the bluff, the VP comes up over the bluff, and she's like using a golf towel to like wipe blood off of her hands. It's and stuff. clearly not up to the challenge. It's way too much blood. Not enough towel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've used those towels before to try get, and they can't even handle a little bit of mud, let alone <laughs> human, two humans' blood splatter. So. And it's so funny to see her playing this role, that sort of like admin-y kind of role, because the way she speaks is so different than when she's Clementine. Again, having just watched the episode two, season one, she's so funny in that one. And we were kind of laughing because she's like tired. She's yawning. She's putting her head down on the bar. We were like laughing about that. Like, how funny that they gave they gave them all these characteristics. But the way she moves her mouth as like the admin, where she's so particular i mean it's really it's right on it's it's the type of admin you want to punch in the face because you're like ah because they're so stoic like you're not going to get through them you cannot yeah you can't deal with this and she tries to give uh navarro advice she you know she says uh you know our ceo has had several personal you know trivial trivialities like run through in the very public way some personal items run through in a very personal way i don't think that approach is going to work with him it was very kind of funny it was you know just she was like i'm trying to help you here also you don't have an appointment so uh, I, i wanted to talk about the tower only because i thought this was a cool fact so the tower is actually based on a real tower called the Munjik Communications Tower, which is in Barcelona. You can go look it up. Maybe I'll put a picture of it up on uh, on our social media. But yeah, so the tower that they're using that's in the trailer, that's in the lamppost design, that's in the opening credits, based on a real tower that exists right now. It's a communications tower in Barcelona. And a communications tower I thought was interesting because it's sending out signals to the homeless guy, to the birds, to Peter, to the other NPCs. So uh, interesting. Interesting that they would use such a very distinctive building as its basis that exists. I don't know what it means. All right, Paul. So what do you want to see in the next coming episodes? Like what are some predictions or anything you're hoping to see? I want to see Bernard and Stubbs. Um, There was a scene shown at the, at ATX where they meet Aurora Perrineau's character and they are clearly on some kind of adventure where they, they are back on track with, the mission that they left off on uh, when they were with the man in black and he turned on them and things kind of went to hell. I am dying to see them back in action. I'm really enjoying our Caleb Maeve adventure. Like the entire international spy vibe that they're giving off is super cool. And I'm loving the chemistry between them. If we're going to do like a buddy whole thing where we have Stubbs and Bernard, I want to flip back and forth between them and what's going on with Maeve and Caleb. Which is interesting because, you know, Dolores as a character has always been the most compelling. 
And so for Christina to be sort of like last on my list of of the people I really am like super caring about is a surprise to me. So I'd like to see how that's going to change. I uh, definitely want to see Bernard. I miss him. Uh, he's my favorite character in the show. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm definitely missing him. But I, I want to. I want to get into more into the timelines, into the the timey wimey shit that Westworld does so well. That's, <laughs> what about uh, the wibbly wobbly? <laughs> I'm more about the timely timey wimey, but the wibbly wobbly is good too. Um, yeah, I also wear bow ties because they're cool. Um, yeah, yeah, that that's what I want. I wanna I wanna start parsing out and get my red string board of conspiracies all set up and uh and start parsing through where we are and what's going on. I always go back to when Paul said it was called Westworld. The name of it is Westworld. We've got to get back to the parks. We've got to get back to doing all that. So that is what I want the most. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to The Valley Beyond, a Westworld podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. While you're there, if you could leave us a five-star uh, five star review, that would be fantastic. Or else, you know, we're going to, I don't know, put you, strap you in a machine and make you have a deep and restful slumber. I think it's time for a deep and dreamless slumber. Send the flies. We'll Han Solo you. <laughs> we'll fly your eyes. I'll fly your eyes. Ah! Ah, I made my listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.